Now we are continuing our study on baptism. Um, and so can we have the definition up? I trust that it is up. So we are studying that we are studying baptism. We started studying baptism last week, and we're continuing our studies on it. Right? So the reason why we're studying baptism, number one, is because it is one of the most important commands that Jesus gave us, gave the church. The Great Commission, Jesus is saying, go baptize, nation, go baptize all the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one of the direct commandments of Christ. It is one of his holy sacraments, a visible representation of what, of our relationship with him. So it is a very, very important topic. But I want to emphasize, it is especially important because the nature of baptism is intricately tied to the definition of a Christian. The definition of baptism is intricately tied to the definition of a Christian. Christians get baptized. The ceremony of baptism is a visual representation of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? So last week, we covered Acts 19, and remember, Paul meets a couple of Jewish disciples of John the Baptist, right? And Paul asked these guys, which baptism did you receive? And they said, we received John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul is telling them, the baptism that you received is not enough. What type of baptism did these guys receive? They receive baptism that says people should repent and believe in God. The baptism these disciples received says you all should repent and believe in God. The baptism these guys received also said you need to love your neighbors. If you have two coats and if your neighbor doesn't have one, give the extra one to your neighbor have no savings account. Give it away. Right? That's the baptism they were baptized under. They were also baptized, baptized under the teaching. Live for social justice. Don't extort people. Don't cheat people. Live justly. So these guys, they were baptized onto these definitions. But Paul is saying, that baptism that you received is not enough. Let's actually think about what Paul is saying here. Look, most people, when they get baptized, they think, okay, I get baptized because I, I want to believe in God. I believe in God. I get baptized. And, then, and most people get baptized because they want to love other people. That's fine. And most people get baptized saying, oh, yeah, I want to be like, you know, I want to live for good. I want to do social justice. Those are, those are all reasons why people think what a Christian is. But Paul is saying that those claims are not enough. Those claims, your need to believe in God, you desire to love, for other, love, love other people, you desire to even do social justice, those things in and of itself does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian, Paul tells those disciples, is that you 
need to receive baptism in the name of Christ. Which means what makes a person a Christian is their union with Christ. What makes them a Christian is not their ideals about God or their desire to love other people or even the desire to do good. That doesn't make someone a Christian. All important things, but those things in and of themselves do not define a Christian. Why? Because Jewish people believe in that. Muslims believe in that. Scientologists kind of believe in that. Buddhists believe in that. If you tell a Buddhist and Islam and a Jew, hey, look, you should believe in God. They go, yes, sir, Bob. You should love other people. Of course we have to love other people. You have to do good in the world. Amen. Like, I don't know what Islam says when they say amen, but they all would agree with you. Right? And so does little Z. What makes you a Christian is your union with Christ. And that's what baptism symbolizes. Let's look at the definition. Definition, please, Prof. War. Baptism is a church act. Church is the one who baptizes, affirming and, and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing the person in water. Let's talk about the water bit. We talked about the union with Christ bit. Let's talk about the water bit, right? Baptism is immersing someone with water, and that immersing someone with water symbolizes a union with Christ, okay? First of all, the word baptism in Greek, it literally means immerse something in water. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to be sprinkle someone with water. It's to immerse someone in water. That's what baptism means, okay? Why water? Why do we do with water? We do with water is because in, 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 in the Old Testament, water symbolizes cleansing, but it also symbolizes God's wrath and judgment against sin. And it also symbolizes God's saving work. So in the Old Testament, water symbolizes cleansing, God's judgment and wrath, and God's saving work. Two examples of the Old Testament that God uses water to, to, for, for these things. Number one, Noah's Ark. God judges the world and cleanses the world through the flood, right? He uses water, a lot of water, to, 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 to judge the, the unbelieving, to judge humanity. But he also uses water to start a new humanity through Noah's family, right? Are you with me so far? Another example, God using water for these purposes, is the Red Sea. Israel was crossing the, Israel was about to go to the Promised Land. Egyptian army was pursuing after them. We all saw Prince of Egypt, right? That's how it goes, right? Moses, God called Moses to use a staff and, and God split the Red Sea. The people of God crossed the Red Sea for salvation. The, the Egyptian army that was crossing, chasing after them, were judged by God by, by him having closing the, closing the Red Sea. It, the water was salvation for the Jewish people. Water was judgment for the Egyptian people. That's the symbolism of water. 
wrath of God, judgment of God against sin, but also renewal of people of God through water. Are you with me so far? A lot of theology that I, that I throw at you. Now, in baptism, we immerse people in water. I'm going to talk about sprinkled. I will sprink, I'm a sprinkled baptism guy, right? So just because I was sprinkled, it does not make me a Christian. It does not, not make me a Christian, right? So, right. But, but in, in the history of the church, people, the mode of baptism, the form of baptism, in the history of the church, in the early church, was predominantly by submerging people in water. One of our brothers, Joe Reyes, we were, I went to his small group and he says, how, we, how, how were you baptized, Joe? He was, I was submerged in the Atlantic Ocean. Whoa! So Joe's dad baptized him. So this is what it symbolizes. When Joe was submerged in the water, that symbolizes his union with Christ, where Christ takes his sinful nature, and Christ takes Joe's sinful nature, and is buried, and Joe's sinful nature, our sinful nature, is buried with Christ. That's what the insubmerging water symbolizes. Our union, our sinful nature, united with Christ in his death. So our sinful nature dies with him. And when the person is brought back up to life, that symbolizes God raising us to new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as Christ was raised to life, when we emerge out of the water, it symbolizes God giving us new life. It's the most dramatic way of visually representing our identities in Christ. We should get a big tub of water and start baptizing here. I may get fire here, but that is what we should, but that is the representation. Buried with him when we go under, raised with him when we come up. That is baptism. And that is, a very, that is a representation of our union with Christ. Let's talk about our sinful, what, what we were buried with. What was buried, what about us, that, what, what was that about that was buried with, with Christ? Our sinful nature was. We get hung up. Our definition of sin, like I said before, we get hung up on individual acts. We don't think about the our orientation, our nature. God created human beings to love him and to love, love our neighbors. That's our DNA. That's our design. When we live in accordance to this design, we flourish. We have eternal life. But our orientation is that we don't want to love God and we don't want to love other people. That's just how we're oriented. And, I, and the example that I can give you is the movie Oppenheimer. I'm not going to spoil it. Spoiler alert. He develops the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? 190,000 people. Spoiler alert. That's what the movie is about. But the movie is more than that. The movie is a case study about a man named Oppenheimer. And you know why the movie stuck with me? It portrays Oppenheimer 
as an egotistical maniac. Oppenheimer, there's a lot of things that he done in the movie. But one of the, one of the examples of the type of person he was, was he never liked, all his lovers were married women. All his close lovers were married women. Even his wife, when he dated her, was married to another dude. He had relationship with multiple married women. What does that tell you about a guy like that? He's a romantic? He believes in love? No, he does whatever he pleases. If he thinks something, he wants something, he's going to go after it. Why was he so enamored about developing a nuclear weapon? Yes, Nazis had a head start and Right, we have to develop it before the Nazis do. Legitimate. But the main reason why that guy developed the nuclear weapon was ego. He had an idea. And he wanted that ideal realized. And the U.S. government is going to pay for realizing his idea. It is that ego that drove him to make the nuclear, nuclear bomb. At the end of the movie, he realizes what he's done, and he regrets it. But this man's life was driven by ego. And all the individual choices that he made was based on the driven drive of ego. This is a representation of human nature. Our problem is not because it's not we have road rage when we drive. Our problem is not you know, these little, these th curses that we do, these are all bad, but that's not the fundamental nature. The fundamental issue is, is a sinful nature that does not want to love God and that does not want to love other people. All the sins are based on this nature. When we are united with Christ, Christ takes this nature, this selfish, self-loving nature of ours, and he kills it with him. And we are brought back to life. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it raises us and gives us new life. And new life that we have, we want to love God, and we want to love other people. We can't get there on our own, and God through his Holy Spirit, sanctifies us day in and day out so that we can realize to become, you know, he helps us to love God and love other people. But the fundamental change is, before the union with Christ, we think it is very natural to live for ourselves. But after, you are, after we are raised to life, we now want to live for God and for, and for other people. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. The changes of nature from a person who, had no, who, don't want, who don't love God to a person who, who is in all of God and who wants to follow God. And I might, I'm here to tell you, 
There is no other power, there's no other philosophy, there's no other job in the world that can change our nature but through our union with Jesus Christ. Guys, I am old man, right? I've seen a lot. My life is like a Korean soap opera drama. It's just dramatic. Dang, they could like write a soap, Korean soap opera and post it on Netflix. Things that I went through. It's such a unique life. I have a, I have a job that I love, and I have a wife that I love, and I have children that really that, that love. All these things that the world says that I should have, I have. I read a lot of philosophy. I read a lot of theology. Certainly, I read a lot of comic books. I know political theory. I know economic theory. I know all these theories. But none of it can change a person's nature but for a union with Christ. I am certain of it. My son is reading self-help books because I used to read self-help books when I was his age. And the meanest thing that I said to him today was, buddy, you can read all those books and those books have really valid points, but they cannot change your nature. They cannot change your nature, man. Union with Christ can. Only union with Christ can. That's what baptism symbolizes. The question you will ask is, Pastor Jay, number one, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Right? I think I'm a Christian. Do I have to be baptized to be saved? Good question. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Catholics and Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration. They believe the act of the ceremony of baptism washes away original sin. Right? So when the infant is baptized, they believe that baptism washes away original sin. That little boy or girl, when they grow up, they can lose the faith. That's what they believe in. They believe you can lose the faith. But when mommy and daddy submits the kid to infant baptism, then the original sin, their nature that doesn't love God and love other people, that nature goes away. We don't believe in that. We believe what is important is what the act symbolizes, what the act represents. The act represents our union with Christ. What matters is our union with Christ. Baptism is for people who have been united with Christ and see evidence of that union. Right? That's what, in the early church, in Acts, for example, there was this fashion designer, ladies, the first fashion designer that was converted to Christianity, Lydia. She sold purple dyes. I guess she was like, you know, the, the, you know, the Stella McCartney of, of, no, no, Stella McCartney. Who's a famous female designer? I can only think of men. Weird. Anyway, she was one of the like, important fashion designers. She was, Act 16, she was out in the market. She heard Paul's preaching. She was converted. She got baptized. The Philippine jailer who jailed Paul. Paul preached the gospel to him and his family. They heard it. They believed it. They were baptized. What came first? 
Baptism or faith? Faith came first, and then they were baptized. So we believe not the act itself, but the, but the power of the Holy Spirit to persuade someone of their union with Christ. That is what saves people. That's why I think me being sprinkled, right, is a legitimate form of baptism. Because I am certain of my union with Christ. Funny story to, you know, an intermission break. My old church, there was a guy who, like, who was confirmed in a Presbyterian church. And during the confirmation ceremony, the pastor, like, sprinkled water on him. He didn't know the pastor was going to do that. It shocked him. And he goes, oh, S. And he, like, he dodged it. Greg, I'll tell you who it is. You know him. <laughs> Greg knows him, right? <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> he cursed and he dodged the water. Is he going to hell? <laughs> right? So I will sprinkled, and I think my baptism is legitimate because I know that I'm united with Christ. But the question is, Pastor Jay, okay, I don't have to be, I, I don't have to be submerged for my, for my baptism to be legitimate, but do I need to be baptized? And the answer is yes. Even though baptism does not save you, it is a commandment of Jesus Christ. Christ calls all the disciples to be baptized. Why? Definition, please. Because baptism is a believer's act of publicly committing himself or herself to Christ. What is baptism? Baptism is number one. Is that you are publicly committing yourself. You are declaring, declaring yourself publicly that you belong to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, 33. Everyone who acknowledges, acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my heavenly Father. Jesus is talking about public declaration of faith. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That's what he's saying. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You, the disciples, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a, on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in, in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, if you are a Christian, you got to let people know that you're a Christian and you got to do, do good works as a Christian so that they, through you, they will glorify God the Father. Jesus called his disciples to publicly declare their faith. And that's what baptism is. One of my old students, Colin, he was a manager at Ernest & Young Tyson's. A lot of your sunbeds. And my gosh, that guy was brave. At the, I think he was, like, he was one of the managers who oversaw the new hires. And when the new hires come in, do they still do that? They have like a new hire day or something? 
they have a new hire day, and the first thing, at the new hire day orientation, this is what he says publicly. He says, my name is Colin. I believe that Lord Jesus Christ had died for me, and I've been raised with him. I am a Christian. He starts newcomer orientation at Ernest and Young Tyson's with a declaration of who he is. Why? Because he primarily identifies himself as a Christian. God bless Ernest and Young E.Y. Tyson's. Do you know how many people in the history of the church died because of their public declaration of faith? Martyrs were tempted to say, if you just deny Jesus, you can just practice your faith privately. Just don't do it publicly and we won't kill you. Right? Do it in the dark, man. And many martyrs said, no. I am a Christian. And they were killed for it. Christ commands us to be baptized because that is the public confession, profession of who we are in him. Do you understand? Second, baptism, Christ commands us to be baptized. The second definition of baptism. It is a believer's act, committing yourself, publicly committing yourself to Christ, and his people, thereby uniting, therefore uniting the church. The reason why we, why we get baptized, not only is that our public declaration of faith, but through baptism, we are united to the church of God. We become his people. Now let's talk about today's passage. This passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're welcome, small group leaders. I gave you a lot of stuff to study this weekend, this week. Good, good luck, right? As we, as we remember, because we studied, we, we studied like, we devoted like two years of studying 1 Corinthians. One of the main issues, reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is because there were divisions in the church. There were just divisions in the People were just divided. The church of Corinth was divided. Okay? The church of Corinth was divided. And they were divided over many, many different issues, right? One of the reasons why they were divided was, remember, they were divided about who was the legitimate, who was the OG teacher. Some say Paul was the OG teacher. Others said Apollo was the OG teacher. Some say Peter was the OG teacher. Some say, I don't need any of those human beings. I think Jesus is the OG teacher. They were divided. Their loyalties were divided based on the different teachers they had. Number two, they were divided ethnically. Some of the church members were Greeks. Other members of the church were Jews. They did not get along. They were divided that way. Third reason why they were, they were divided socioeconomically. One group, of, one group of the congregation was free. The other group of congregation were a slave. Different socioeconomic class, right? They were divided between spiritual gifts. One group of people had very visible public gifts. They could speak, out and speak in tongues like that, or praying tongues like that. Like they were walking, they would suddenly prophesy, like prophesize like that. Other people, they didn't have such talents. And the people who don't have public gifts, 
they didn't feel too good about themselves. And, they, and, and people who had very public spiritual gifts, just become, they started becoming like, had inflated egos. Many, many divided reasons for division within the church. And there was a big church. It was like a house church, right? Even in a house church, it was divided. Paul addresses this division in today's passage by reminding them how they were united in Christ. Verse 13. What does verse 13 say? Verse 13 says, okay, let's do verse 12 and 13. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, members meaning body parts, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, right? Members, heads and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Those are all different members of my body. But all the different members come together like Voltron and make me me, right? My ears cannot, it does not exist separately from me. My hands do not exist separately from me. They, they all come to form together to make me me. He says similarly. You are the body of Christ. You are all the body of Christ. Christ in this world is composed, comprised by you. Right? And how is it that you guys are all one bodies of Christ? Because for, because in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. He's saying, even though you guys are myopic, nearsighted, even though you may think that you only exist for yourself, in reality, if you are a Christian, if you are baptized, you become one body in Jesus Christ. Remember, baptism is a union, our union with Christ. If I am united with Christ, if Sean is united with Christ, if Sean is united with Christ, if Sean is united with Christ, I'm a funny guy. If the three Seans are all united with Christ, can I do with, with Josh's? A couple of Josh's. Me and the Seans are one body because we're united onto the same body. Paul is saying, you guys are arguing, but objectively, because you guys are all baptized and united with Christ, you guys form one body. Baptism. You, are, you publicly you get baptized because baptism is your entry into the church, into the body of Christ, the church. Look. If we're going to get to, like we're going to, in more detail next week. There's the church of God, the people of God are largely divided into the visible church and the invisible church. The visible, invisible church of God is all the people of God throughout time and space, right? They're all like, it includes Paul, it includes David, it includes Christian guy in year 2033, right? It, like, it encompasses everyone who are united with Christ, right? It's everyone in the history of the church that has been united with Christ. They make up the invisible church. 
It is for the invisible church. It is for this invisible church, for these people that Christ died for. It is for these people, right? I've got to use my notes today. It is for these people who, whom Christ began a good work in them. Remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He says, he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the end. This is about perseverance of the saints. The people whom Jesus died for is also the people that Jesus is responsible for until the very end. How do you know? Jesus is promised in John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep listens to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus is saying, the people of the invisible church is the people that I died for, is my sheep, is the one that I started a good work in them, the father will complete, are the people that no one can snatch away from me. My gosh, what a great promise. These are the, these are the people of the invisible church, God's elect. But there's also the visible church. The visible church is the local body of believers. Visible means you can actually see them, right? Visible church are the local body of believers who confess faith in Christ and are baptized onto Christ. It's the local church. It is for you, it is for me, it's embrace, right? Keep in mind, we'll get to this more next week. The invisible church and the visible church they're not identical, meaning there's some people in the visible church who are not really part of the invisible church, meaning even though there are people in the visible church, Scripture warns us, right? Even though there are people in the church who are baptized, they're not really God's people. How do you know? They will fall away, right? Jesus says, in this generation, in the church, there are the sheep, which is our two disciples, and the goats, who are not his disciples. Jesus allows the sheep and the goats to reside in the same place, visibly. But one day he will separate them. So we'll get to this more next week. So there's a visible church and an invisible church. But what is the entry to those, to those church, to these two different types of churches? It's baptism. Paul says, you guys are all one body because it, you guys are all united through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when you listen to the Word of God, it is the Holy Spirit, number one, who, who inspired the writing of the Word of God. And number two, it's the Holy Spirit that persuaded you of the truth of the Word of God. And number three, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicted your heart of sin and your need of a Savior. That's what Paul means when you say you are baptized in one spirit. He's saying it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that you're, you're, you're united with Christ. And it is with the Holy Spirit that you are regenerated, you have new life. So all of you were baptized onto Christ through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you guys are one body. So baptism is your entry to the people of God. 
Paul says it doesn't matter whether you're a Greek, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free, it doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are. If you profess faith in, in your unity with Christ, you are one body. Therefore, baptism is a sign that you are a Christian and that you are the member of the body of Christ. Let's talk about embrace. We come from different backgrounds, you and me. We weren't raised in the same church, right? I was raised in Korea by way of Indiana to here. Hyo and Jamie started their lives in Embrace, got married in Embrace. We'll probably have kids in Embrace. Well, you know, like these people, they started Embrace. Other people, you guys joined later. So I don't know your baptism story. But in order for you to become part of Embrace, you need to be a Christian. Why? Because what membership means, what membership means is this. Membership means we think you're, you're part of the visible church. We think you're a Christian. It doesn't mean if you're not a member that you're not a Christian. I hope you are. But for our purposes, it is the members of the church whom we believe are the visible church that God has called us to serve. Right? It's the members. The members are the visible church whom we, whom we believe God has called us to be united and serve, serve God and serve each other with. And in order for you to be a member of Embrace, you need to be baptized. That's why one of the first things that I ask you if you're interested in membership is, are you baptized? Are you baptized? And if you say no, then you got to get baptized at our church. So let's talk about this. Some of you, most of you, are from the Presbyterian circle, right? So most of you are from Presbyterian. I'm from the Presbyterian circle. I think I'm from the Presbyterian. I think I was baptized as an infant. I don't know, right? But let's say you come to me and say, I say, you want to remember? You said, yes, sir. And I said, were you baptized? You said, yeah, I was baptized. And I ask, when were you baptized? And your answer, if your answer is, I was baptized when I was a baby. And I ask you, did you know Jesus Christ when you were a baby? Did you make a public profession of faith when you were a baby? Chances are no. If that's the case, then I ask you, you need to be baptized. Okay? But what, is your, what if your answer is this? I was baptized as a baby, because, but because I was a good Presbyterian, when I was 14, 15 years old, I was confirmed. And I go, okay, great. Confirmation is great. You are sprinkled. I love sprinkling. You are sprinkled. All right, great. During your confirmation, were you aware of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you, can you, did you get confirmed because you know that you are united with Christ? And if you say yes, I will recognize that. We will recognize that baptism. We will recognize a confirmation. We will. Some Baptist churches, and I'm not a Baptist, some Baptist churches will say, any type of baptism you receive in a Presbyterian circle, no good. You need to be baptized by the Baptist church. And that's not me. Because I believe what's important is not the, act, not the mode of baptism, 
But whether it is confirmation, whether it's baptism, did you, were you baptized? Because you know that you were, you were united with Christ. Did you receive that kind of baptism? And if you're honest with yourself, if you say, I got baptized because my, kind of, my mom and dad made me, and it was like a youth group thing to do, and I'm not really sure I'm a Christian, having gone through this study, I'm not sure what I'm really united with Christ, then we need to talk. If you went through baptism or confirmation, because it was just a religious rite of passage. It is something that you do. Without any realizing what it really is. Or, and, and, you, and your life has not shown fruits of the fruits of new life. Then we really need to talk. Okay? So if you're baptized as an infant and if you're confirmed and during your confirmation, you are aware of what you are what baptism meant, then we will recognize your baptism. Otherwise, you need to be baptized if you're a Christian. Okay? The last thing that baptism symbolizes is that it is not only a public declaration of faith, it is not only your, not only your entry to the church of God, but by being baptized, you're saying you're committing yourself to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing these verses within the context of spiritual gifts. They were divided because one group of people had this amazing spiritual gift and, they, gift and they were being puffed up. The others didn't think they were so visible. They felt bad about themselves and they resented people who had public spiritual gifts. Paul is telling them, it doesn't matter how public, how prominent your gifts are. What matters is that you use your gifts to serve the local body of believers. When you are baptized, you're saying, I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ, and I'm committed to the body of Christ. Because if you are a Christian, if you are united with Christ, Serving the church of God is not an option. It is what you are created and saved for. Look, so I, I read a quote. One of my friends posted like a, I'm an old guy, so I look at Facebook, but I don't, I don't the only person that I follow on Instagram is my wife. Oh, how romantic, yeah, right? No, 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 I don't find anyone else interesting to follow in Instagram, right? So I used Facebook, and my, one of my old um, seminary buddies, who's now a professor in the seminary, he posted this quote by this Christian. I forget who the guy is. But he, and the quote says something like this. He says, most Christians like, are really interested in what God can do for them. But maybe that's not the question. The proper question is, what can I do for God? And the quote says, God is active in this world, and God is active in your life. He really is. He is active in your life. He really is. 
Maybe what he's active in, you're not interested in. But regardless of whether you're interested or not, he's active. He's doing something in your life, doing something with the, within the people of your life, with your bosses, with your workplace. God is doing something. And the quote goes, maybe what you are called to do is to ask God, how can I help in your work? Not how you can help me, but how, how can I be used to facilitate your work that you are doing in my life, right? That's what this is. God is at work at this church. And your question is, it's not so much what benefit can the church give me? What programs can church give me? but how I can serve God as he's active in the church. Being baptized means you're not only committed to Christ, but you're committed to Christ by committing to the body of believers. That's what baptism means. Please, I think we should save the series and post it in our, post it in our website because this is really important. This is what baptism means. And the question is, number one, are you united with Christ? And number two, are you living, if you are united with Christ, are you living consistently with what he has called you to do? Right? Next week, and parents, I'm, I'm telling you this preview. Next week, we're going to talk about infant baptism. So we have all this definition of baptism. Infant Baptists are saying, in the light of all this definition, you should also baptize your infants because they're biologically connected to you. They have legitimate theological reasons. I want to be fair. I'm going to, next week, I'll try my best to persuade you why infant baptism is right with a twist of why I don't really agree. So I will represent infant baptism position, hopefully, Lord willing, really well. But at my core, I'm not sure whether infant baptism is the right thing because they're saying this applies to your babies. And I'm not sure whether that's true. Okay, let's pray.